Ladies and gentlemen, the spectacular Spider-Man! Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. Otto Octavius was weak. Call me Dr. Octopus! From now on, we're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Welcome to the season one finale episode of Spectacular Radio. I am Zach Joyner, the executive producer of Spy-Dude.com's radio network and, of course, the webmaster of that particular site. We've got... Our host, as always, to introduce the rest of the panel, Mr. Greg Bashansky. And joining us is the rest of our co-hosts. And we've got Mr. Gerard Delatour, who survived his criticism of intervention. <laughs> well, wait. I think I see some people with uh, pitchforks and torches gathering up outside now. <laughs> and joining us once again is Mr. Jesse Betteridge. Hey, really happy to be back. Happy to have you back. Um, it's been a long time I'm... since I've last spoken to you, Jesse. Yeah, I know. So long. It's, I'm, I'm surprised that the, the response was so sensational from the first episode. They, they, I, I just had to come back again and bask in that more of that glory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's some reception we had, yeah. And we are here today to talk about the episode Nature versus Nurture, which thankfully is not going to make us debate that particular topic because you know, <laughs> I yeah, thank you all. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you want to get into a, a debate about science with a Texan in the room? Are you out of your mind? Oh, whoa, 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 son. Evolution, what's that? Hey, man, let me tell you something right now. You want to sit there getting a fight about me with science? We'll, we'll have we'll have words out back with, 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 our, with our dueling pistols, man. I got two words for you. Get her doing. Hey, that's the dirty south. We're not going to talk about that across that Mississippi River. I tell you right now. No, we're also, not gonna... also, that guy isn't southern. <laughs> that's a true story. He, he, he's, if you ever heard him talk normally, he just sounds like me. Exactly. Which <laughs> he puts on the southern accent as a gag. Oh, you dumb southerners. They're buying into his bullcrap. Get her done! <laughs> All right, um, we've actually got a couple of emails to read. Okay, the first is from our friend Adam Spencer. You're going to send them to me, right? No, I'm going to read them here. I thought okay. I was going to read them. Oh, Zach? Zach? I've, got, I've got another one for you to read after. Well, you better, you better uh... paste it. I will, okay. First, uh, we've got from Adam Spencer. Hey guys, since you're wrapping up the first season of Spectacular, I thought I would drop you a line. I have listened from the beginning and really enjoy the reviews and behind-the-scenes info dropped by your Spectacular guests. It is the best Spider-Man show ever produced, and while we don't get season three, this podcast has been a fun way, way to compliment rewatching the series again with my daughters. Thanks everyone for the hours of entertainment. Wait a minute, he listens to this show with his daughters? Uh-oh. <laughs> we need Carl Lewis going, uh-oh. Actually, Uh-oh. I'll make it up for it now. Posting this in the window, here's uh, Alex Widens. All right, so we have an email from Alex Widens, sometimes known... So uh, this is his email. This is Alex Widens, sometimes known in one message board as Dread, and currently a staff writer for the BamSmackPow.com. Shooting a long overdue shout-out to express my appreciation for the podcast. 
Spider-Man's a character who is near and dear to my heart. At times, in spite of some of the decisions made by his comic book editorial and writing teams. And in many ways, it was he who helped usher me into the world of comics. One of the first TV shows I remember seeing as a toddler was Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. I thought it was going to be Spider- Spectacular Spider-Man. I was going to feel old. Yeah, well, well uh, full disclosure. <laughs> I know Alex. We met him at uh, New York Comic Con. Yep. Nice. And ever since, I've always... I, I'm sorry, I take that back. I met him at New York Comic Con. Greg knew him before that. Uh, yeah. Uh, and ever since, I have always made it a point to follow the wall crawlers' adaptations to small screen animation. For one reason or another, all of them seem to miss the mark in terms of capturing the hero as well as his cast and the world around him, in a way which felt both accurate to the past, yet innovative for the future. All right. <clears throat> as a teenager in the 90s, I remember the sense of frustration with Fox Kids' Spider-Man the Animated Series, due to the fact that it may have been iconic, but it was also very much a product of its time with no end of limitations in terms of plotting and budget. It further frustrated me when the shows which shortly followed afterwards, seemed to continue the trend of underwhelming Spider-Man shows. However, that streak ended when 2008, when Spectacular Spider-Man debuted in the waning days of the Kids WB Network. From the theme song, to the character designs, to animation, to storyboards, directing, writing, and of course acting, it seemed to satisfy everything which I had felt a Spider-Man show could and should be. It fully capitalized not only on Peter's vast and diverse cast, but it also utilized the format of a TV show to capture the full swath of serialized arcs and subplots that the classic comics did so well. It was a shame to only have it last two seasons, but they were easily two of the best seasons of Spider-Man ever. From pilot to finale, it easily was the best adaptation of Spider-Man to another medium that has ever been produced. I appreciate all the efforts of the podcast and producing engaging interviews with Greg Wiseman and other writers, producers, and even actors from the show as sort of a extended commentary, which we never got on Blu-ray. The fan panels are always a blast and a great way to switch things up from the creative team episodes. It's my favorite podcast and one which is doing a great job to give spectacular Spider-Man the focus analysis and in-depth devotion it deserves. Pawing through the entire show, two podcasts at a time, may seem harder than lifting a great weight to save Aunt May, or is it Gwen now? But it's been an amazing ride so far, and I continue to look forward to each new episode. Here's to another season of Living on the Edge, Fighting Crime, and Spinning Webs. This is Alex Wyden, sometimes known as on one message board as Dread, and currently a staff writer from BamSmackPow.com, shooting a long overdue shout-out. Wait, did you send this to me twice? Did it copy and paste in there twice? Yes. Okay. Damn. All right. Okay. I was starting to read it, and I was like, I just keep going. I'm like, all right. <laughs> <Just roll laughs> I, 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 thought, I thought he was being overly pretentious and, like, repeating himself at the very end. So this is him shouting and <laughs> signing off. Like, oh, like, okay. What is this, a radio show? What? My fault. My fault. <laughs> I feel like Ron Burgundy right now. You put anything on the teleprompter, he's going to read it. I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> Who put the question mark in the teleprompter? Who did it? <laughs> That's how I feel right now. No, seriously, Alex, thank you for the email. Yes, thank you, Alex, for the wonderful email that I tried to read twice. Uh. All right. 
And if you want to send us more emails, spectacularradio at gmail.com. Send us emails. We like them. We are a horse for attention. Yeah, and, and if you want to be, you know, have your voice a part of the show, you can also leave a voicemail. 818-925-6631 is the voicemail line. Which I forgot to say in the last episode. I think I, I think it's been a while since you last advertised that, actually. Yeah, yeah, I, I forget. <laughs> I forget to do it on this show. I do it on the other two shows just fine, but I, I, I tend to forget it. I, I just constantly prompt you for it on Mayday Mondays. That's the only reason you remember. <laughs> it's a true story. <sighs> so yeah, be sure to leave us voicemails. It's for the entire radio network. Yeah, so specify which show you want to leave the message for. Exactly. Because the last thing, you, last thing you want is for us to like play a voicemail on Mayday Mondays. It's like, hi, I want to talk about Spec Radio. And I'm like, oh, damn it. I mean, the last thing you want is Ron Friends on the... Oh, wait, we always want more Ron Friends. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and once you hang up on him or pick up accident. All right, Yeah, I pick up the pick up the phone before he believes his message. <laughs> Context is for the week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll have to listen to Mayday Mondays to find out. I'm good at plugging. <laughs> you're, you're, a, you're a selfless, shameless whore. It's okay. Aren't we all? <laughs> it was really a shameless horse back. Your ex wife. Okay. No, no, no. Oh! <laughs> oh! And on that note, we're going to dive into nature versus Dude, nurture. That's staying in. <laughs> you know what, Zach? You know I love you. No homo. I love you too, no homo. <sighs> okay. Nature versus nurture. Having rid himself of the symbiote, Peter reneges on his deal with Tombstone by apprehending a group of masked goons and giving them their masks as a warning. Following his departure, Tombstone is approached by Venom, who offers to take up the job Spider-Man rejected. Tombstone accepts on one condition, Spider-Man's head. The next morning at the hospital, Peter visits his aunt and leaves a picture of Uncle Ben, berating himself for his callous behavior. At school, he thanks Flash for the reality check, and Flash begrudgingly acknowledges him but warns him not to mention it to anyone. He also also apologizes to his friends for snapping at them the other day, and Liz invites him to help hold the school football team's mascot balloon at the Thanksgiving Day's parade, but Peter says he intends to, to bring Aunt May home, and Gwen, urged on by Mary Jane, awkwardly volunteers to help him. MJ informs Peter about Eddie's grudge, and Peter calls to apologize. Venom answers the phone, sinisterly saying he'll meet up with Peter shortly. At the hospital, May is given a clean bill of health and is eager to get home to prepare dinner, but Peter volunteers to handle Thanksgiving Given. Unfortunately, he makes a mess of the kitchen, which and uh, then asks one of my favorite lines. I wonder if Romita's delivers because if the if John Romita senior engineer ran a pizza shop, I'd go there every day. That's a true story. <laughs> he rather infamously, infamously did an interview once with a pizza in his lap, driving around New York City. I remember that <laughs> junior, junior that is. Yeah, junior, not senior. Yeah, Peter discovers the vial of gene cleanser he had taken following the lizard incident while changed into a Spider-Man costume. Peter contemplates drinking it, but is attacked by Venom, who reveals he knows who Peter is. Peter recognizes the symbiote and expresses disbelief that it survived and bonded to another human being. But Venom sneers at him and easily defeats him, saying that he intends to make Peter suffer for rejecting the symbiote, not just him, but everyone Peter cares about. Peter realizes Venom is targeting Aunt May and chases him to the hospital, where Aunt May is examining an anonymously given get-well card sent by Venom. Spider-Man attacks him before he can strike, and Venom ops targets Peter's love interest and 
said, also revealing himself as Eddie Brock in the process. Thinking Venom would target Mary Jane, Peter rushes to the parade, where Flash is attempting to flirt with MJ, discovering too late that Eddie's actual target is Gwen, chasing after him only to find Gwen's discarded saxophone. He finds her suspended from the Midtown High mascot balloon, and, but before he can rescue her, Venom attacks, revealing he is immune to Peter's spider sense due to the quality time speeder and sim- Peter and Simbi spent together. Spider-Man tries to persuade Eddie to reject the symbiote, but Venom rebukes him, preventing him from reaching the balloon as the symbiote's webbing suspending Gwen begins to fray. Spider-Man goads Venom into slashing the balloon so it would gently land, but Venom snaps the line and tackles Spider-Man when he attempts to carry Gwen to safely. She is caught by the football team, and Spider-Man attempts to take Venom down, but is sent flying through a water tower. Realizing he can't win on his own and that Symbiote is trying to prove a point, Peter offers himself to it freely. Venom initially scoffs at the notion, but Eddie slips up with his first-person pronouns, and the Symbiote immediately abandons him, causing him to pass out. It attempts, it attempts to bond to Peter again, only to realize it was tricked, and it's once again repelled by Peter's friendship and positive emotions. Peter prevents it from rebonding with Eddie by scooping it up into a sack and dropping it into a pool of freshly poured concrete. Peter returns home to find Aunt May already there, and Gwen and Captain Stacy arrive with dinner and help him clean up the mess he had made. And after dinner, Peter contemplates the gene cleanser once more, takes it, and then... I thought the serum was going to help me, but the pain... It's excruciating! Ah! No! No! (laughs) No! No! Actually, Peter dumps the gene cleanser down the drain, declaring helping people with Spider-Man to be his destiny. As the Stacys prepare to leave, Peter and Gwen awkwardly say goodnight before Gwen suddenly kisses him, leaving Peter reminded of Venom's sinister threats. And, uh, a little bit of a bonus, a deleted scene here, which Wiseman showed at a convention. It would have been a post credit scene if we gotten those DVD movies of, the, of these. Uh, a prison guard approaches Quentin Beck and Phineas Mason in their prison cell. He pulls off his mask, revealing he's the chameleon, saying he's there to bust them out, only to discover that Quentin Beck and Phineas Mason are no longer in a cell, but have been replaced by holograms. Ooh. That's oh, I want to. I have to see those scenes someday. <sighs> yeah, if only. <laughs> Thank you, corporate politics. <laughs> Also, but, also um, I don't know how I feel about any summary of this episode that actually refers to the symbiote as Simbi. Well, Peter called it Simbi, and we uh... <laughs> did. Okay, but they, it, it's just so casually thrown in there, like, like it's a thing. But... And Josh called it Simbi when we did the interview, also. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So, um, this is the big season finale. Um, Zach, we'll start with you. What do you think of it? You know, for a season finale, I thought. Um... You remember how a few episodes back I said it should have been Sinister Six? Yes. Yes. Well, this is a good second. <laughs> hmm. um, Can I interject? Here's my thoughts on that. As far as villains go, I think it should have been the Sinister Six. As far as, far as Peter's personal arc goes, this is uh, it. You actually were leading me right into my next point. Um, Sorry about that, but go on. Uh, but yeah, I think from a personal standpoint... It almost has to be Venom, because you've, you've foreshadowed Venom this entire season, and this is one of the rare times that Wiseman departed from the Lee Romito Ditko, Romito, Romita Ditko uh, era, 
and brought in a modern-day character that served as fundamental importance to the series in Eddie Brock. So this is, as much as it has been Peter Parker's story, you have this linear story that's been going through the entire season with Eddie that's been going concurrently, and this is where you you almost had to make this the season finale. Uh, I thought Venom's design is, it's okay. I'm not a huge fan of it, because I think it's probably the, one of the weaker designs, personally, that Cheeks did, because everything else just seems so much more perfect. But um, for the, it fits the style, obviously, because Cheeks did it. But uh, I'm not completely in love with it. I, I prefer a little. I prefer the Spider to be a little more like like Venom is in the comics. But I get why they they kind of made it yeah. more like a. Um, I want to say like a cross between the the classic Venom Spider and. and Ben Riley slash um, the the venom we got with um, I had never noticed that now I can't see it actually yeah so you're right um, but other than that I, I I think that I think the way they handled Eddie I think um, Peter instantly making thinking about Mary Jane kind of makes me grin a little bit quite actually quite a bit uh, well the reason why is because Eddie did see him at the uh, fall formal with MJ yeah so um. But I, being an MJ fan, I'm like, yay! Big fan of MJ again. We'll get to that in a bit. <laughs> um, and I thought Gwen, I thought making Gwen, having Gwen finally pull the damn trigger after an entire season of, well, I like Peter, but I don't like. I think Peter's just my friend. You know, I, I love that they finally got something going with that, and. Uh, really well done with uh, building that up throughout the season. So I thought it was a very uh, good way to end the season. It definitely, I remember when I watched it uh, quote-unquote live, um, I wanted so much more. I wanted I wanted to see more episodes. I hated that it was the last episode of the season. And I had to wait forever. It was a very long wait, as I recall. I remember the Canadians, eh? Sorry. Yeah, we got it first. Y'all got it. wasn't it. a long wait for me. It wasn't a long wait for him, yeah. Australia got it before. I think uh, some country in Eastern Europe got like, it first. It, first, it was Canada got about the first half of season two first, and then suddenly Bulgaria got ahead of us, and then, <laughs> and then, Bulgaria. And then Australia um, uh, beat everyone for the last uh, stretch of episodes. Isn't that next door to Latveria? Yes. <laughs> actually, I, actually, I think I think in canon, actually, Latveria is like between what Hungary, Poland, and some I can't remember. Yeah, but but I I know what you were doing there, Delator. <laughs> a, re- a reference only you and I would get. Um, yeah, <laughs> but that, there's nothing can kill your your upcoming season's ratings faster than having than having it out in other territories months ahead of time. Yeah. We'll definitely talk about that more when we get into second into the second season. Yeah, our next our next episode with Wiseman will be covering that quite extensively. Jesse, what do you think of this one? Okay, I mean, uh, oh, oh, um, go on. All right, so I I want to start by saying that Nature versus Nurture is just an awesome title for this. I think it may actually be my favorite title in the series, just because there's a lot to unpack with it. Like, like what what does it refer to? Is it is it assuming that? Uh, Eddie's like irrational rage and hatred is nature, and that Peter's upbringing is the nurture that kind of counteracts that, or is it the other way around? 
Um, I, I think there's a lot of ways you could interpret it. I think uh, a, a lot of thought went into the title. Um, in the end, I think the most important thing, though, is that it probably confused a lot of children, and I like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> See, did, 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 did you even pay attention to the titles as a kid, though? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I'm assuming that most children probably aren't really paying attention to the titles. I, I think most people don't pay attention to the titles in this show and totally miss the the naming scheme. Uh, that's like that's pretty much only for people who like follow this stuff obsessively online. Um, if anybody does catch on to that, or especially kids catch on to that, that's that's pretty cool, I think. Um, but I would imagine that most just your average viewer probably wouldn't, though. Um, but anyway, I think I, it's, a, it's a great title, and I think it, it underlines the episode a lot visually. Uh, this may be the best looking episode of the series. Obviously, it's directed by Victor Cook, um, and it is a like it, it just. Uh, it is just absolutely kinetic and uh, and fun to watch from beginning to end. There's always something going on. The tension is very high for most of the episode, more so than I think in in, uh, in any other episode of the series. As particular, the scene with uh, Gwen dangling from the the Thanksgiving Day uh, parade float. Uh, I think. Oh, Gwen, get used to this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I think that that is like the most uh, the 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 tensest scene in in the whole series and it's pulled off so so deftly and so so brilliantly and it's a huge like i I watched intervention and nature versus nurture back to back and man like you see the difference right away uh with the the obvious higher budget and and visual flair that that went into this episode um so it looks great and also that opening scene is is phenomenal and i believe it was all it was used as a sort of trailer for the series before it was well. yeah, yeah. With, with uh the, with different animation same boarding and it wasn't gene the wolf and uh stan carter at the very end and but yeah that it was used as a trailer yeah, for, for san diego i remember that yeah f- funny thing about that scene i can't remember if this was in the, the original trailer or if this was only in the televised version how the uh the guns shot those weird spiked projectiles um that I, i'm not sure if that was only Part of the uh, it wasn't in the trailer. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually wondering if Kids WB was kind of meddling like Fox Kids it, did. Well, it does go back to that. Like you watch this show, and I think Greg even admitted that guns were like the one ma- one of the major um, S and P points. And he and I know he doesn't get into that too often. Uh, he he usually focuses on the successes more. Um, but it, it seemed that it, guns could be like realistically depicted as long as they did not sound like guns or fire realistic projectiles um and if they did fire realistic projectiles or sound like realistic guns they could not look like real guns um that seemed to be the trend in this show that that seemed to be the way that the 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 compromise that was struck with with kids wb just based on looking at these episodes but spike projectiles were one of the the interesting um uh artistic choices to come out of that compromise um so yeah, it's uh, visually a fantastic episode. Might might be my favorite visually. Um even though you could say it's a little a, a little different from say Final Curtain, which is more bombast from beginning to end. This is this is more uh thrillery. Um So I I uh for the most part, most of what I have to say is related to Venom. Um visually, I think Venom actually works quite well in this series. He he does look kind of goofy. Um, compared to most interpretations of the character. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it actually kind of adds to his menace a bit in a way that's less obvious. Uh, it's also worth noting that there's a lot of a lot of kind of funny-looking shots of him in this show, and it inspired quite a bit of, uh, quite a few memes. 
um, back when the show was first airing, especially on like 4chan, um, especially that scene with, with Venom peering into the window, which, you know, out of context is kind of funny, but in the kind of malaise of the episode as a whole, it just kind of keeps this, this tension going, um, uh, or, or kind of underlines this tension in a, in, in a neat way. Uh, and then you get like weird body horror stuff, like with, uh, the, the costume opening over Eddie's head, like some kind of weird, bizarre hippo, or uh, the stomach opening on his mouth, um, which is, like, really surprising and subverts expectations, but at the same time makes no less sense than the idea of Venom having a mouth on his face, either. Um, and with Venom, I know that he's a, contro- uh, he's a controversial character, of course, and it's, we're probably... We'll gonna, get to that, we're, but... We're gonna, yeah, I know that uh, Greg probably has a lot to say about that. Um, so but, is Gerard, I'm sure, but um, <laughs> yeah. actually... I mean, if I interject what you said about Venom and opening its mouth, someone, when Ultimate Spider-Man started and there were flame wars between this over this show and that show, this was the weirdest comment that I've ever seen. And this is someone <laughs> criticizing this show. I mean, ahem. Venom also wasn't as creepy. No, this person is being pro-Venom to the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon. Venom also wasn't as creepy as he's been in previous Spider-Man cartoons, so younger viewers won't have any nightmares. My son was quite freaked out when Venom grew a mouth in his abdomen in Spectacular. He was five when Spectacular Spider-Man first came out. He loved the Venom saga, the 90s cartoon, and he saw Spider-Man 3 in theaters. For some reason, Spectacular's Venom with a torso mouth gave him a a jolt the first time he saw it. I must admit, I was weirded out from it before, just from a what-the-fuck standpoint. He's Venom, not Satan in Dante's Divine Comedy. And this is someone propping up old and criticizing Spectacular by saying it was too scary for his kid. We need more body horror in children's cartoons, I think. <laughs> more. Yeah, Zach, Zach Gerard, have you ever heard that comment before? No, but it sounds fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I read that back then, back in 2012, and I saved it. I held on for it. I don't know why I did, but I'm glad I did because we're talking about it now. <laughs> I, what? I, 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 I well, I'm thankful for your archival instinct, Greg. It's it's you're you're doing a good service here. Um, I don't understand this. <laughs> so anyway, I think it is worth pointing out if you look at the ratings for Spectacular Spider-Man on IMDb, and if you haven't gone on IMDb to rate Spectacular Spider-Man as a show overall or the episodes, you should do so because I don't think it gets enough attention on there, and as a result, the rating isn't quite as high as I personally think it should be. Um, and it, it lags behind like it, its contemporary shows, too. But if you go on there and look at the individual episodes, Nature vs. Nurture is the highest rated episode out of all of them by a significant margin. Um, I don't agree with that. Well, but... <laughs> I don't agree with that either. Um, but it really shows just how much of a uh, force to reckon with uh, Venom fanboys are. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, but, but he, I mean, here's the thing. Um, Venom is ridiculously overrated. But he does resonate with people very strongly. People people really like Venom, and I think that is valid. I think there are reasons for that, uh, and I don't think that um, dismissing uh, that that interest in the character or that uh, the, or, or the or what people see in that particular character is always the best approach. Um, and now, I, I obviously we don't actually know if including Venom in the show was a was a mandate of any kind. I don't. I, I I've gotten the impression that it wasn't. But of course, uh, you know Hasbro probably. Well, if it wasn't, it might have been. So they just said, "Okay, let's bring him now before they tell us to do it." Exactly. Yeah. Like I, I, ha- I find it hard to believe that Hasbro would have been okay with season one not having um, something to base a Venom toy off. Uh, that just it just makes sense. 
So, you know, there, there's a certain to, to, to a degree, including him here is just kind of pragmatic with the commercial nature of the show. Um, but the thing is, like, when you're looking at why, how, why people like Venom and the things that do work about his character, you need to he needs to be retooled extensively to really work and fit those expectations. Um, and I think that's a big reason why you have to go as far back as making Eddie Brock uh, a childhood friend of Peter uh, for that to, to, to really work properly. And, you know, Ultimate Spider-Man kind of laid the foundation for that approach. Um, and, of course, Spider-Man... Or half-assed it. <laughs> yeah, half-assed. And, again, that's because Bendis was reluctant to use Venom. Um, and also in Spider-Man 3... Uh, Again, Raimi was reluctant to use Venom, and, and it seemed like he was fighting it. But at the same time, he kind of had the right idea with Eddie Brock. I think that Topher Grace as Eddie Brock was actually a, an inspired bit of casting. Uh, I think going with that dark mirror of, of Peter kind of approach with him was the right approach, but it was just all horribly mishandled due to various reasons. I was going to say this for later, but it sounds like we're having the Venom discussion now. Um, well, I mean, uh, let me just get my bit out on Venom, and we'll, 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 we'll all have a lot to say about Venom, I think. Um, so here is, here, here's the thing. Um, so I think that a lot of people have problems with the way that Eddie Brock, uh, was done in this show. And I can, I can understand because a lot of it wasn't clearly communicated. A lot comes down to the, the motorcycle scene from a couple episodes ago, which again, the intent wasn't, didn't come across quite as clearly as it may, as it maybe could have. But I think the, the theory behind it, the thinking behind it was, was very good. I think a big problem is that the way that Eddie has been very carefully constructed to sort of match why people sort of like and appreciate Venom has resulted in him being a very a very complicated character. Um, and if you don't relate to him, uh, I think that it can be kind of hard to understand. When I try to explain Venom in this show to people, I usually wind up – I usually describe it as just imagine yourself in your moment uh, – in a moment of your most just – irrational, unjustifiable hatred that you know the way you feel is not justified or, or right, um, but you just you can't help yourself. You feel that way, and you just give in to it. And imagine that you have been frozen in that moment forever, uh, not because of, of, uh, of, of mental breakdown or anything like that, but because you have found infinite validation in feeling that way. And that is kind of how I interpret Venom in this show. You know what, I, I, I get what you're saying there, you know, and in a way I can relate because this is a bit personal, I don't want to go into too many details, but a few months ago I actually did have a nervous breakdown related to the job I was working that I really hated, and uh, Zach and Gerard had a front row seat for that one. Well, that's, see, that's the thing. If you do relate to Eddie in this show, chances are it is a very personal thing. Um, he is a very delicate sort of character. Um, and the way I and, you know, this is my interpretation, it may not be 100 percent valid, but I've always felt that in this show, Eddie, due to their their background together, um, Eddie has always had a sort of irrational subconscious hatred of Peter. Um, and he the thing is that he Eddie is smart and he realizes that his hatred for Peter is irrational and senseless and he doesn't want to feel that way. And that's why he calls him bro. That's why he, he treats him like a brother and, and has that special friendship with him, sort of to compensate for the fact that he can't control that resentment um, over their, their, their life uh, circumstances. Um, and at the same time, you, you kind of look at Eddie and, and 
they mentioned that he was on the football team in high in back when he was at Midtown. But at the same time, he doesn't really, you know, he would he would have played together with um, with Flash for at least two years. Uh, but you don't get the sense that they were ever really good friends or that he was part of that social circle. Um, yet we always see him hanging around with Peter and Gwen. That seems to be what, you know, that that relationship he was maintaining with Peter is kind of what was driving him. That was sort of the center of his social life. And you don't get a sense that he had a social life beyond that, because, I mean, he was in he was in university and like he's still just hanging out with 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 Peter and Gwen. That seems to be his strongest social bond as, as far as we can see. You, you can say that's an oversight. I think it was. I, I think that it was really open in that direction in a very, very deliberate way for me. And the line that Venom gives when he confronts Peter and he says, that we're not brothers. You you had um, Aunt May and Uncle Ben, uh, but we were always alone until now. Like, I love that line um, because it's the closest the show comes to kind of encapsulating his incredibly complicated character into 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 a way that's kind of... Um, uh, concise and easy to understand. Uh, it, it gives me chills. It's, it's almost, it's, I would say, just as good as uh, the Green Goblin's line about masks from The Uncertainty Principle um, that uh, def, you know, defines the character in, in one line in a way that uh, works on, on, on a few different levels. Um, and that's kind of why I really... Maybe, maybe the reason I really love Venom in this show is because he gives me a lot of material to try and defend and talk about extensively like I do here. Um, but I, I think he, he worked really well for me. Um, and that's a big reason of why I really like this episode. Um, and also I will say that, uh, just kind of moving past that for a second at the end, the visual depiction that we have of, um, of, uh, the symbiote trying to overtake Peter again, uh, that looks much better than what the end of interaction or, uh, sorry, not interaction. Um, intervention did. Um, we have a much sort of uh, better realized visualization of the symbiote itself in his fantasy, whereas in the end of intervention, he kind of looks like this kind of undetailed blob. Uh, here, he actually looks the symbiote looks kind of menacing, um, and 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 actually uh, a real real enemy. And the color actually kind of benefits. The, uh, the fantasy as well. Overall, it's a better visual depiction. Um, yeah, that's m- m- most of what I had to say about that. Also, uh, one thing that always gets me in this episode is when you see the Statue of Liberty um, parade balloon and how in a lot of cartoons, despite the visual style, uh, they'd always try to emulate the way the Statue of Liberty looks in reality, but here it's done in Cheeks' signature style. I like that touch. Um, that that uh, that 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 really works for me. Um, I don't know why I wanted to point that out. It just was just a note I had that I find I find kind of funny. Um, also, I find it kind of uh, I I really liked how nonchalantly they uh, acknowledge the fact that uh, this is the first acknowledgement of the series that Gwen and Captain Stacy are related. It is never mentioned or even implied um, before this. Um, which is kind of, on one hand, it's kind of weird, but on the other hand, it's kind of satisfying to just see, to see it thrown in there, and you're like, oh, they're those two are related, just in case for for people who didn't know. Um, I I, I kind of like that. I think that's that's a nice touch. All right. Yeah, that's everything I have to say. Yeah, Gerard. Uh, where do I start? Um, 
this I, I think this episode's much better than the previous one. I'll say that, although I'm the only one that hated the other one. Uh, right off the bat, first thing we get hit with the action. It looks great. It blows the animation of the previous episode out of the water. If you watch them back to back, it's really j- almost jarring that these are both from the same series. You know what I mean? Um, um, like I said with the previous episode, Flash is great in this. I think he might have been my favorite part of both of this whole thing. Especially the the whole scene with him and Mary Jane at the parade. I was just laughing a lot. That was a, that was a that was a very well needed break from the doom and gloom of the rest of the plot. Yeah, where it it broke up all of the. I hate to use the term emo because that implies a whole mess of different things, but this episode is very emo in places, and you needed some levity to, to brighten it up a bit, which evens it back out again, which is nice. Uh, yeah, can, I, can I jump in? Also there, Peter has a line that I really like. Um, At least Flash is not possessed by an evil symbiote, as far as I know. <laughs> Ooh, foreshadowing! <laughs> <laughs> okay, obviously not at the time, but you know what I'm Unintentional to. foreshadowing! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, there are also a couple of really funny little things that I pointed out that, that I wrote in my notes that really are, are they're not intentional things, but I just found them hilarious for different reasons. Uh, the the ape mascot that Gwen ends up getting ends up hanging from in the in Venom's webs is it my imagination or is it in certain shots does it look like it's doing the Nazi salute? Oh, God, yeah, it does. It does, right? Because it's supposed to be doing, like, the old football pose where it's doing, like, a stiff arm kind of thing. But it seems like the arm, the the hand isn't at the right angle half the time, so it just looks like it's giving the fascist salute, which is hysterical. And there's also, uh, <laughs> there's a line that Peter has where he says, uh, you're the disease, they're the cure, right? Yeah. Uh, that made me. That immediately made me think of that Sylvester Stallone movie Cobra. Cocaine movies of the eighties. <laughs> You're the disease, and I'm the cure, or whatever. Wasn't that the tagline too? It was like, "They're the disease, he's the cure." Like <laughs> that movie's great. If we, if, if the what's the name, the Axe Killer was in more movies, that would be fantastic. But anyway, uh. uh We'll get to Venom <laughs> at the end, because I have a feeling we're going to be arguing about that one again. But as far as negatives go, um, it, it, I, while I liked the majority of the episode, I felt like there were some things that were wrapped up or added into the episode, but they were handled hastily and not well. Specifically, the uh, the whole thing with Tombstone seemed kind of arbitrary, where Peter took his job, we never actually see him doing anything for it, and then Venom just shows up, it's like, hey, you need a replacement? It's so random. The episode didn't need that element at all. Um, It it got us a great line from Tombstone, though, about how he doesn't micromanage. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, um, Let's enjoy Tombstone now, or it's going to be a while before we see him again. Yeah, it, uh, I, I felt like they put him in here solely to have him in the finale, because they had to. Which, uh, I always get awkward about elements like that. But there's also the the whole thing with Peter finding the gene cleanser again and considering using it felt very tacked on to me. Where, we've we like, he's been through this before. <laughs> and... I didn't get the sense that there was anything causing him to question again why he was Spider-Man in between the last time he considered using it. I guess he was asking who he's more responsible for, to the city or is the people Peter Parker depends upon, and he decided both. Right. 
But yeah. I feel like he went through those issues already. Yeah. The, the biggest problem I had with that was that his webbing seemed to last to hold the vial up for that long. <laughs> yeah, um, well, yeah, that's that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Back in Black, where Webbing held on to a spare black costume for apparently five years. Oh, jeez. The less said about that, the better. Uh, <laughs> uh, but other than that, I actually really enjoyed the, ep- uh, the episode. Even though I hate Venom, everyone knows this. And sorry, Jesse, but I was shaking my head at a lot of what you were saying. Although I, I won't fault you for it. But... Uh, sorry, you lost me when you started bringing up IMDb ratings. <laughs> That's, I'm just kidding. Calm down. But uh, I've always had problems with Eddie Brock and the symbiote having similar motivations to kill to take out Spider-Man because it often feels like the Eddie Brock element of it is tacked on. And while I think the show did a good job of giving him legitimate reasons for hating Spider-Man, I almost feel like those are just excuses and are thrown by the wayside by the time he actually attacks. I also get the feeling in season two it's revealed that more. This is more the symbiote than Eddie. I mean, there's a we'll get we'll talk about that when we get to season two. But there's a big scene with Eddie and the symbiote and Peter, and uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Right, but the, I, I guess the deeper point I'm trying to get to here is that they always play up the Eddie Brock element of it, especially in this series, as being very significant. Whereas the actual action and happenings in the episode don't actually support that. But like you said, that's get covered. That gets covered in season two. Much better, I think, as far as, yeah, tying, as far as tying Eddie into this whole thing. Yeah, well, let's put let's put it this way. Just what we say now, I really enjoy Venom's appearances in season two. I actually think that was a really well done episode. And I'm not a Venom fan, but uh, we'll get to that. But I but I'm just telling you right now, I'm really positive about that one. Right. I'm also gonna to uh, jump on the back of what you said that Venom looks very awkward in this episode. <laughs> I, I think I kind of figured out what it is. Is that I understand they try to make him look beefier and more physically imposing than Spider-Man. That's always a problem that artists have, where if they draw Spider-Man looking too muscular and beefy, you have to make Venom look even more grotesque by comparison. But I don't think it was necessary for this show, because Spider-Man is already so wiry and inferior looking to everyone else, that making Venom basically look like a giant hairless gorilla doesn't really add anything to the character, and it just makes him look goofy. Um, something about the style that they did, the, sh- the way he shaded, I think the shading especially, it it just doesn't look quite right. I would have liked to see Venom with a slightly darker color scheme, maybe. Because he's almost, uh, maybe you don't he, 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 kind of a ma- he, he looks kind of like a matte color rather than a glossy. Yeah, yeah, he's like a, he's like a bluish-gray kind of thing. Whereas, yeah, yeah, like, uh, the 90s show is a good example of this, where he's almost all ink, and then the highlights are all blue. It looks... No, it looks well, well, there were, there, there were also in the 90s show those really awkward pink highlights on him. Yeah. Right, but that still worked, because most of his skin, his skin looked inky. You got the idea that it was reflecting light and things like that. Here, he, like, Jesse used the proper term for it. He looks like he has a matte finish, as opposed to having a gloss finish, which he should. But that's a minor, it's a minor visual nitpick. Yeah. Uh, Zach, you're gonna say something. Kind of like the new uh, symbiote Spidey on Marvel Legends has a real glossy tone to it. Yeah. Right. Whereas the uh, regular Venom has a mad finish. Uh, as much as I hate the Ultimate Spider-Man comics version of Venom, one thing that they really got 
down pat was the 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 way that the symbiote looked and moved. Mark Bagley, yeah, he was the best part of that comic. Absolutely, like it helps. It helps you have the guy that drew the symbiote the best. <laughs> although, although he is on record saying that's the reason he quit the title in the first place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I I think the exact quote was, "I got really tired of drawing Spider-Man, Venom, and Carnage heads all the time." <laughs> Which is like, okay, okay, I can buy that, Bags. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would have liked to see Venom interpreted more, a little more closely to a sort of inky, not quite as physically solid kind of thing. Which is odd because the symbiote alone is depicted that way, but once it bonds to Eddie, it's just the it's just the giant gorilla. It's <laughs> too bad. Yeah, I, yeah I, good good episode. Good episode. Yeah. I I like this episode too and too but the talking about Venom I mean I think I've gone on record I don't like Venom I think this is one of the better depictions of Venom in me, in mediums I mean if I'm I mean I really don't like Venom in the comics okay, if I'm being honest the first two Venom stories in the comics by David McElhinney and Tom McFarlane those are pretty okay the problems with them <laughs> compared to relative I mean yeah. I said they're okay but um. Granted, there were problems with the origin already, but he, but the de- a lot of the even deeper problems didn't really start taking off until later. I mean, obviously that crap about him protecting the innocent and turning him into an anti-hero, <laughs> flat-out hero, were, didn't really factor in there. And, uh, I, I always love when people point out Venom is an anti-hero. He only kills people that are guilty. I'm like, you mean like, oh, you mean like good. prison guard? He suffocated on his way out. Yeah, the, he literally suffocates the, and says, "We don't like it. I but saw, we know it must be done." A lot of Venom fanboys were hating on this version of Venom because he was uh, a villain. <laughs> what? I mean, I remember seeing that, seeing that, and like he never hurt innocent people. He wouldn't go after Gwen or Aunt May like that. He would never do anything like that. I'm like, have you uh, read the very first Venom stories? <laughs> I mean, again, he killed a prison guard, like you mentioned. He, uh, that, he, killed that, he goes to Aunt May's house and threatens to kill Aunt May. <laughs> Yeah, like, let's, let's, let's roll it back even further. I think we were supposed to believe that he implied to, may have tried to rape Mary Jane or something. It seemed like, that, at least they wanted you to believe that at first, yeah. with that splash page of 300. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's just, I mean, Venom is a villain. I mean, if you're going to use him, use him as a villain. I mean, I'd rather there be no Venom, period, I mean, but... There's a lot of things about this version of Venom that I like, especially when I say it's relative to other versions of Venom. I think, for the most part, in most cases, Venom has always been better adapted than his original, because the original version of Venom yeah. was just a clusterfuck. It, it's I like mean, I mentioned in the previous episode, every time he appears, they give him a different motivation. That, that, yeah. that speaks to how poorly motivated he was in the first place. I mean, I mean he was... I, I mean, obviously, they anticipated a... a some degree of popularity with him because they he was introduced at a uh, is, is, like a, in an, in an event issue of of Amazing Spider-Man, but um, I mean they I don't think they expected him to be like this huge uh, marketing monster that he wound up being. Michelini didn't yeah. expect it. Hell, he planned to kill Eddie Brock yeah. off at yeah. some point and have the symbiote. Actually, if we're going to go back even further, you know what the original host of Venom was supposed to be, right? A woman yeah. who, who, a pregnant woman who got into a car accident because she saw Spider-Man and got distracted. Fighting a villain. Fighting, no, she was fighting a, her husband was driving her to the hospital. Right. Spider-Man came through fighting a villain. There was an accident. Her husband died. She lost the baby and uh, then eventually the symbiote would have found her. Right. Which, by the way, is a better origin story than the one Venom actually had. 
as bad of, as bad of an origin as that would have been, it still would have been an improvement. I, I agree that uh, that I'm actually trying to imagine if they could have. Let's say that you got that version of Venom. Could you have gotten that version of Venom into any cartoon show with that origin? <laughs> no, absolutely not. You'd have Hell, to be very you, you, careful. You, I, I mean, not, you wouldn't gotten that origin of Venom in the late '80s anyway, but yeah, maybe now. Maybe now. If we got some sort of uh, you know new universe version of Spider-Man, I'd be interested to see if someone would try that. But uh, but yeah, I mean it's just down to I mean one of the things though that I do like about this Venom, this way that it picked him anyways, I like the sheer brutality of him. I mean he's uh, tearing shit up, shit up. You know that he's a physical threat to to, to Peter. And you know I the, you go back to the Venom in the nineties cartoon. I think he could have been also if he wasn't limited by a much more stiff standards and practices. I mean there's a scene here where Venom's running towards. Spider-Man, and he's just, and his arm is in the wall, and he just keeps going. I mean, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he physically feels like a threat. Yeah, the design's a bit goofy, but you can, I still feel physically like this guy could really hurt him. Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, he's very, he, he's one of the most violent villains this show has had, and the show really hasn't shied away from the violence aspect of, of things. I mean, he's, uh, and he, and he's just crazy. Yeah, I, th- I think part of that is because Venom's hat is just brutality, though. Because a lot of the... What's the best way to put this? The, the whole point of making him a spawn of Spider-Man is to make it so that he has uh, just a purely visceral hatred of him. And that always manifests itself as just, let me just beat the hell out of him. At least that's how you would imagine it would be. Also, in this yeah. in this show, he has the designation of being the only villain who... well. That we're aware of, who knows of Spider-Man's identity as well. Yeah, we'll talk more about that when we get the final curtain. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, he's just—I mean, I feel like he's one. Of the, I definitely feel like he's one of the better executed Venoms. Even the flaws in this one, I don't really fault the show itself for so much as the fact that they're built into the DNA of the very character. I think we've said this on a previous podcast, right? Most of the limitations of this version of Venom are just trappings of having the fact you're adapting Venom in the first place. If this is an original character, I think we wouldn't have those trappings. Yeah, and, and like I said, he's one of the better ones, and I like Ben Disson's voice. Ben Disson plays him well, and I like the effect that they have for the Eddie voice, the symbiote's voice, and they both kind of jive together, but kind of off-sync from one another. This is something Greg does in all of his shows. He did this in Gargoyles when uh, Jackal became the avatar of Anubis. He did this in uh, Young Justice with Dr. Fate. You know, I think I'll keep you alive to watch as all life on this planet withers and dies. After I bring the gift of death to this world, maybe I'll reunite you with your son. No. Witness the havoc wrought in these hours. The world needs Dr. Fate, and the girl's natural affinity for the mystic arts makes her the perfect candidate. Yeah, it's a fantastic yeah. effect. I love it. Yeah. To, uh, to be fair, that they have precedence for that with Venom, because the 90s show did a very similar yeah. effect as well. Yeah. Yeah, were they off sync with each other? I forget. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. The 90s show also had him driving that pink truck honking. Oh, that was great. I love (laughs) it. Are you kidding me? The shot of him blowing the horn while he's looking at Spider-Man is one of the classic, one of the classic gifts that ever come out of that series. Uh, And one of the greatest similarities, I have to say, though, is um, because 
we haven't done the interview yet. Maybe Kevin Hopps watched it. Greg had never watched any of the 90s shows. So when you get to, uh, from now on, we're poisoned to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. We're Venom. That's very, very, very similar to a line from the 90s show. And Well, surprise, surprise. Now, we're one. Now, you're gonna pay. From now on, we're poisoned to you, Spider-Man. That's why we call ourselves... I don't know if Kevin Hobson watched it, but, it, but that's a pretty close coincidence. Yeah. I assumed it was just borrowing from a source material that you thought was yeah. good. It worked, yeah, it worked. So. Yeah, I mean, again, Greg doesn't know, maybe Kevin did. I mean, well, Greg I mean, was, was, Greg was not shy about borrowing from any, anybody and anything outside of the other cartoon. Yeah, this one, he... He would plead ignorance over. <laughs> so, um, which, given his past again, history, would it, it wouldn't be untrue. I mean, we're not saying that. It, oh, he's lying. We're saying he no, probably. No, he's very honest on this show. He's very. <laughs> he probably had no idea that there were similarities. I mean, we, or maybe, or again, maybe Kevin Hobbs wrote the script, saw it, and liked it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it, it is a good line. Yeah. We use it on our opening <laughs> music of the show, so we we obviously like the line. Yeah. By the way, Greg, uh, you'd know this better than I would. Uh, was the voice of Venom a single track that was offset, or was it two different tracks? I assume it's two different tracks. Yeah, because I caught a couple of spots where it wasn't quite the same. It, w- it wasn't supposed to be, actually. It was supposed to be off-sync. Right. Well, well I, I just mean in terms of the, the delivery of the lines. Like, I caught a couple of spots where it seemed like he had a more... He growled a little more in, a certain, in, the, in the other take that they were using. So that you had one take, which was more or less a clean version of the line, and the other take, which was had like a growl at the beginning or something like that. Like, my ears could have been hearing it wrong, but I, I got yeah, that. I, I, I have to look again, but I know that Ben Diskin, when he, when that, whenever he would play Venom, he would have no voice for a week, because these are four-hour sessions, and he would have to do the Eddie voice and the Venom voice, and they would do all these takes. And uh, I mean, it, it was really rough on its vocal cords. I mean, he did a great job. I mean, I think he's great. Yeah. Agreed. Although I wish that there was a mo- more of a differentiation between his voice as Eddie and his voice as Venom. In terms of, I, th- I think Eddie growls a little too much. That could be the symbiote pushing him also. But, no, 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 uh, I mean before, but pre-Venom. Yeah. There's a lot of that in episode 12. Where when he gets, he's being an angry, bitter kind of jerk-off, he, he already starts to sound like Venom, which shouldn't happen until he gets the symbiote. Yeah, yeah so overall, I... If I'm honest, I do like this Venom, and that's saying something because I don't like Venom, period. But he's also, he's not my favorite villain in this show either. I think they did as good a job with Venom as it's possible to do. Maybe someone, maybe there will be an adaptation later that really blows Venom out of the water, but I don't think so. I mean, I mean, he was okay in the 90s show also for what he was. and My also, apartment, uh, my health, everything? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Hank Azaria there, and... And uh, actually, the Alien Costume Part 3, I think, was supposed to be the season finale of Season 1 of that show. They just ended up airing them out of order. Because if you look at Episode Guides, Production Guides, which I remember looking at the time, that was always Episode 13. Then it didn't air yeah. like that. And there was, supposed lo- to be, there was supposed to be a gap between Parts 2 and 3 also. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. That could have made sense. You could have easily done that. Because, because at the end of Episode 2, uh, Eddie just becomes Venom and he walks away. And then, assumedly, there's some time in between where he's planning his revenge, and then in episode three, he would show up. At least that's how I remember the order that I saw being 
as far as out of production went, but I could be wrong. I mean, I suppose they could have made the Alien Cosmo two-parter and then just titled that episode Venom much later, but... Yeah, that was sort of the idea. I, I will say about the 90s version of Venom, I think one thing that did nail maybe better than this version did was the idea of Eddie Brock as a creepy stalker. Um... Yes. Which I guess we, we get we get a little bit of that in season two with with this version of, of Eddie and Venom, um, but uh, yeah, I, I think the '90s version captured that aspect well. I think. I, I th- yeah. I, but I think this version may have ruined, or I think they botched the execution of that because they had the whole scene with the motorcycle ride happen earlier. I think that would have worked a little better post Venoming, if that makes any sense, than uh, than pre. Well, I mean it's. Again, it comes down to the execution of that scene. It just didn't really play out the way it was supposed to. So. Right. Well, and I but, think but, that, but you're right. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Zach. I want, and I, to go back to one of our previous episodes with Greg, you also... Um, it was supposed to signify his, his fascination with death, but you really... Mm-hmm. It didn't, that was one of the rare times it didn't come across in the... Yeah, I mean, apparently he always drives like that. He drives like a maniac. Which, I mean, reminds me of a certain person on the show that drives like a maniac. (laughs) In that case, a better way of conveying it may have been having him not be angry and drive like that. Yeah. To to be fair, Miss Crazy did make me feel suicidal a few times. (laughs) (laughs) I was talking about you you being a chauffeur for Greg. <laughs> no, that was no, that was more incompetence on my part. That's true. <laughs> uh, since you brought up the '90s show, I do have to mention in the in the '90s version, uh, there's that whole bit where Venom taunts Spider-Man by ripping his mask off and sort of dangling him there to to, to threaten him with the idea that his, he would reveal his identity. Season two. Yeah, I was gonna say I wish that was in this episode because that would have really cemented. The, the fact that Venom was more than simply a physical threat to Spider-Man. Because it, it seems like this episode almost got there. Yeah, but it's, it's also... It's also what? But it's good, because they're saving... They're, they're saving his, you know, most positive attributes and spreading them out. I think that's a good thing. Uh, I guess the point I'm getting at is I didn't want to ever see Venom, ha- Venom after this. <laughs> I, just, okay. I wish it was... They get it all in at once and then be done with it, so you don't have to ever use Venom again, but... That's a preference of mine. I just don't like Venom, so I don't want to see him. I don't, I don't like I, minimize his appearances, yeah. please. Yeah. I don't like Venom. Like I said, I really, like, I really like his appearance in season two. I think it's in season two that's some of the best Venom I've ever seen in anything. But I will again. I yeah, I agree with you on that. So we'll, it's a pretty we'll low bar, one. though. Come on, it is a low bar. But, uh, <laughs> bar, but no, no, I genuinely like the season two stuff. And uh, you know, going in, I was going to give this episode a lower grade. We'll talk about we'll get the grades later. But I actually enjoyed it more this time than I have. I hadn't watched it in years. It's usually an episode I skip over, but over. But um, let's talk about uh, we never really went in depth on Gwen Stacy on this show, and uh, <laughs> now is the time to do this. But she finally stepped up, so we're going to finally step up. Also, the thing about Gwen Stacy is is that she's the most radically different character in this that was adapted over. And the reason why is because Gwen Stacy in the comics is a Silver Age girlfriend. That's all she is. The only reason people remember her for anything is that it's because she died. She, right. She would, mm. she would be Peter Parker's Heather Glenn. 
Yeah, she would be. Or Dory Evans. Yeah. But she, but she died in the story that ended up being not only one of the most important Spider-Man stories of all time, but one of the most important comic book stories of all time. And she cemented her place in the mythos. And I don't disagree with her place in, in the mythos at all. I mean, I, I'm, I have no problem with the idea of her being... Betty was his first girlfriend. I have no problem with the idea of Gwen being Peter's first love. I have no issue with that at all. Most of us don't even get together with our first loves anyway, and it also makes me appreciate Mary Jane more. Mary Jane's my favorite Spider-Man character, period, in the mythos. She just is. And part of the reason is is that she wasn't introduced and built for him to be his mate as his eventual wife, his future love interest. It was, it was organic growth, and Gwen plays a big part in that either way, because her death has a momentous effect on both of them. The, the problem I've always had with Gwen Stacy as a character is that it seems like about 90% of her characterization and the way people remember her are, are post-death. In other words, there were things that were always added. Every time we get a flashback, for example, to, to anything that happened with Gwen, her character is completely different from how she actually was in the original stories. Yeah. Like, yeah. completely, it's like, okay, I get that there is an element of looking back on on the past with nostalgia and things. You know I'm guilty of this, because I've talked many times about, about you know, previous romances and things that I wish I had back and such. Privately, not on the episodes, but... And there's an element of that, but it goes way too far, where like, Josh and I have a, a running gag, we call her Saint Gwendolyn the First. <laughs> Like I like I like the title of J.R. Fettinger's essay, Sins Past in the Cult of Gwen. Right. There's mm. definitely some some sort of uh, deification of the character that doesn't jive at all with how she actually was. She was a shrill, whiny, <laughs> clingy, and possessive like girl. She's not the kind of girl that you'd want to actually end up with. You know what I mean? Oh I, yeah, I agree completely. But in I, it, like. It's been retconned to hell and back that she was, like, this perfect, sweet, innocent girl. Like, none of that is actually accurate. And it drives me insane that that's, that's the way everyone seems to remember the character. But go back and actually read some Lee Romino Spider-Man and realize, wow, she's a lousy character. She is. I mean, I mean maybe if she hadn't died in comics with her, she would have had more dimensions added to her. I mean, but that's not what happened. It's... This is the only material we have to go on. And uh, again, I prefer Mary Jane. And in my opinion, even as far as this show goes, Mary Jane's going to be the one that he ultimately ends up with. And Mary Jane's my favorite character. And and Gwen ties in with this. Let me read something I wrote about a year ago here about Mary Jane. I wrote up a list in my blog, my 25 favorite fictional characters, and I limited it to one character per franchise. Otherwise, I can get easy to clog up with certain things. So here's what I wrote about Mary Jane. When I selected her, I was surprised. Also, I sat down and thought about it, and Spidey himself was a hair away from beating Mary Jane out for this slot. But the more thought I gave it, I discovered that MJ herself was my favorite character in the franchise. I think what I love most about Mary Jane is how she took not just Peter, but everyone involved both on and off the page by surprise. She wasn't created to be the great love of Peter Parker's life. She just grew into it. When Spider-Man first started, it was all about the triangle with Betty and Liz. Then Betty and Peter... 
Peter split and Liz faded away after graduation. Stanley then developed Gwen Stacy with the express purpose of being Peter's love interest and eventually marrying him, just as Lois Lane was created for the express purpose of being this for Superman. Things did not work out. He and John Romita also developed Mary Jane, and she, like a force of nature, quickly ended up deciding her own destiny. It wasn't supposed to happen, but time and character development, particularly at the hands of Jerry Conway and Tom DeFalco, and even Stan himself, developed Mary Jane in a manner that didn't feel forced. She and Peter both had to grow up and grow into the type of people who would be right for each other. They were friends first. I think this is why most of the adaptations of Mary Jane, be they the 90s cartoon Ultimate Spider-Man or the Raimi movies, movies never work for me because she is a franchise as low as Lane in those. I understand that recreating what happened in the comics would require a lot of long-term patience and seeding, but that's exactly why it worked. That's what makes MJ unique. She wasn't tailor-made for Peter nor he for her. It was organic. It was real. And that's why I don't mind and even enjoy Gwen's role in this because it adds to that. It's about all of them growing up. I can't really argue with that. It's really well thought yeah, out. That's, yeah, that's, uh, that, that, that uh, summarizes it quite well, I think. So I, mean, I, understand, I mean, I understand the movies had to streamline things because uh, Mary Jane and, and the movies ended up sort of being combined with Gwen, and let's face it, a little bit of Liz Allen in there as well. Every, uh, the necessity of writing movies versus writing yeah. serialized fiction is... is yeah. And, and the 90s show, Gwen Stacy sort of ended up both in Mary Jane there and Felicia Hardy, at least until Felicia Hardy became Black Cat. Hey, more, so, 60- more so Felicia, yeah. In the 60s cartoon, Mary Jane was uh, um, Captain Stacy's daughter. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. In the, uh, in the Ralph Bakshi episodes. Yeah. Um, uh, One thing that always comes back to whenever I think of Gwen versus Mary Jane, since you brought it up, was something that uh, I remember reading an interview once where I think where they had uh, Stanley and Jerry Conway talking about the character. And and both of them sort of had the same sentiment, which is that when you compare both characters to one another, when you introduced Mary Jane and when they introduced Gwen Stacy and throughout the run of the stories... Stan complained that basically the readers loved Mary Jane much more. Mary Jane was a more interesting character. She was a more interesting character to write. And the only way that they could think of to make Gwen more interesting is to simply write Mary Jane out of the stories. <laughs> because by comparison, the, the, she couldn't, Gwen could not stand up to that. And yeah, if all and this... Try to make Gwen- and if all this yeah, sounds one, weird for, for the listeners, you have to understand, once you start writing characters, they take over themselves... It's weird to think to describe them as being actual people, but if they're write write a character enough, and you'll see what happens, where where the the narrative sort of runs away from you. That's that's well, the that's the phenomenon that they're talking about. Where once you, a character sort of cements, and then they take you to where they're going themselves. And Gwen went in a very boring and milk toast direction because that's the sort of character she molded into. Whereas uh-huh. Mary Jane was a fun and vivacious and exciting character because that's the character that she became. And there's no way in hell that you could possibly have them both be in a story and have people be like, that Gwen is sure is cool because that's just not going to happen. So the only way they could think of to, to make Gwen believable as Peter's love interest was simply to have Mary Jane disappear. Well, bring this back to Spectacular Spider-Man. Um, yeah. <laughs> just go, going into the way Gwen is depicted in this show and, and sort of um, idealized and lovingly, lovingly characterized in so many ways. Um, I mean, obviously, 
uh, Greg Wiseman and and the other writers in the show are aware of Gwen's evolution as a character. Um, and I'm sh- uh, I, I would imagine that the the way she was retconned over the years was factored into the way she's characterized now. Um, could it not always also be seen as kind of a subversion of that idea of her being the uh, ideal partner for Peter in the sense that they never actually get together? <laughs> I think, obviously, I think they would have had the show continued, and then uh, I also think the same fate that happened in the comics would have been waiting for Gwen. I, I, I really do think this is all going to happen. I, I firmly believe that. Maybe not in the show itself, yeah. but I firmly had, believe it, had, it, all, it all would have happened. Had Greg had his way, not this Greg, the other Greg. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There would have been, I think we would have had a a time where he dated Gwen. I think we would have had a time where he dated Mary Jane. He might have dated Mary Jane before he and Gwen got back together. I, I, I don't know. Like, I know we're getting into, this is just purely speculative here, but yeah. I, I almost kind of think that if the show had continued on to, you know, for, for, for you know, obviously we don't, we, we don't 100% know the answer, but it's very likely that Gwen's death would have happened at some point, but... I really get the feeling that if it had progressed to that point, Peter and Gwen would have never actually properly gotten together at any point. It always would have been like this this sort of tantalizing kind of expectation people would have. Uh, that was, that Ooh, would I, never, I like that idea. Yeah, that would never actually be achieved. That's, that, which makes it easier to romance late, later to look back on, if only, yeah. if only. That's true. Uh, yeah. I, I really like that idea. And as for Gwen and this show... She has a personality. I like her. She's not being idealized. I mean, and she is an opposite of Wendy. Of, I know she's an opposite of Mary Jane in this as well. I mean, they're not trying to make her more like mm-hmm. MJ. Even next season when she gets her makeover, they don't make her more like MJ. They allow her to be her own person, and that's an important thing. And I feel like it's a bit more re- realistic for, for a bit of a maybe. This version of Gwen feels like a real person, whereas, say, the Emma Stone version of Gwen feels more like an idealization. <laughs> you want to open, open that can of worms? <laughs> oh, I was planning on going there anyway. I mean, here's the thing, though. I like Emma Stone as an actress a lot. She is very, very charismatic. She's, she is great. And I, Dude, everybody thought and I, that she was going to be, would have been a perfect Mary Jane. I agree. I'm one of those people. I mean, she looked she like looked, a Ramita Mary Jane come to life. Yeah, she, yeah, she did as well with the material in those movies as anybody in that situation could have. And she and Andrew Garfield, th- this is the only positive of those movies. And again, when they killed Gwen off and those, there was no point in continuing them anyway, regardless of how you felt about them. Because the only good thing about those movies was the chemistry between Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. Not even necessarily the material, which wasn't very good. Good, but that was like the only positive in that. With that gone, what was the point? I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, it got to the point where there was there was talk of a clone saga. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, there's also part of me that thinks you could have put Emma Stone in red hair in the next one, just called her Mary Jane, and people would have accepted it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, it doesn't help that the way they killed off Gwen Stacy in Amazing Spider-Man Two is fucking hilarious. 
Yeah, I was funny. laughing the entire time. It was so that's funny. Because, that's, be, that's because you're a twisted son of a bitch. No, it's because they basically turned it into like the the most complicated Rube Goldberg machine that, that that's ever existed. Where like, yeah. all right, the web is caught in this thing, and then this thing is connected to this thing, and this thing would turn if this thing got disconnected. And then like, the web becomes a hand, like outstretched. Yeah, it was so overly complicated that as soon as what, what was it? Um, when the like the it's like the web snaps, then this gear turns in like slow motion, of course, and then this gear turns and this gear turns, and that cuts the line, and then she drops I'm like, this is funny. This is like, they couldn't have possibly made this any funnier. Like, they, they had to know, right? <laughs> like, it had to be intentional. But why? But anyway. Dude, I, uh, I honestly was shocked because I really thought it was going to be in the third movie. <laughs> I really didn't think they were going to kill her in two. So that, that was what shocked me about it. Well, apparently, uh, if you've seen any of the leaked Sony emails, pretty much all their executives thought the same thing. <laughs> like, wait, why are we doing this in the second movie? Don't you know the name of the game is stretching things out? You gotta get this to a trilogy. Yeah, the problem is also, I think that may have poisoned the well from actually doing a more faithful adaptation of it later on. I mean, I, mean, I would still like to see that story done. I mean, we, we got teased in, the movie, in but... Spider-Man 1. Yeah, and then we have it happen in Amazing Spider-Man Two, and it's like they—how do you, how do you fuck that up? I honestly—they found a way. How do you? You have it by having it happen in a whimsical clock tower, which exists in the middle of an electric <laughs> power plant. Yeah, yeah, like like oh, <laughs> and have her killed in an overly complicated Rube Goldbergian <laughs> booby trap death. Yeah, oh yeah, and, and then he casts her with the web, and her head bounces off of the the, the ground. Which wh- wouldn't she have just been completely brained by that? Like he would have picked her up and like, ugh, what's this? It feels like a watermelon back here. She would have turned her head over, and it would have just been like oozing, like because her skull would have been broken in half. Like, and, and no, she just got a little blood out of her nose. Like, hey kids, come! A little, little blood comes out of her nose. Oh, I guess she's dead. What? <laughs> anyway, uh, that has nothing to do with Spectacular Spider-Man. No, no, in a way it does. Tying it back, I, this is the only Gwen that really feels like a real person to me. And this is my favorite version of Gwen. Granted, it's the bar there is very low. But, you know, I think they write her well. Lacey Chabert turns in a great performance. Yeah. And, again, I'm, I still think is that I still like MJ better on this show because I love MJ and I still think that's the direction ultimately would have gone in. But you know what? At least they're making they're making Gwen a person and making her worthwhile while she's around. Yeah. Which is but I think you have to do because much like uh, Eddie Brock's motivation that we've I've banged on a few times. Apologies for being repetitive. Uh, the same thing is true of Gwen Stacy. The only versions of her that work are ones that are nothing like the comics, and that says something. Because the only versions I think that works are this one, and I kind of like the Ultimate Spider-Man co- comics version of Gwen pre-death. Well, pre-death, well, she died, and uh, well, of course she was replaced by Carnage, but everyone calls Carnage Gwen and just lets it <laughs> it's, it's an Armin Tamsarian thing. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, 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 you're, you're a symbiote that's not actually Gwen Stacy, but from now on we'll call you Gwen Stacy, and no one will mention this ever again. It's like, okay. Thanks, Bendis. <laughs> well, really, well, you know what? You know what's really sad about that, by the way, Zach. Uh, if you read the letter, there was a, intermittently a letters column in Ultimate, and there was one that Bendis answered himself, and it was around like issue forty something, I think, maybe even earlier than that, maybe in the thirties somewhere. And, and <laughs> he he hintingly he joked 
he's like, oh, well, you know, Gwen Stacy's going to be Karn. Uh, oops. And it was supposed to be a joke, and I just found it hysterical that later, like, you know, several years later, he actually went there. <laughs> it's yeah. like he was so bereft of ideas that he went back to a gag from a letters column to actually write a story. Ugh. What a hack that guy is. Yeah. Any more thoughts on Gwen Stacy, both for this show and overall? <laughs> well, I guess we never really talked about her on the show, so... I, um, Gre- uh, Greg has got almost gotten into fist fights with me for saying this, so I'm going to say it real fast and then put my headset down and run out of the room. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm, it's well known that I dislike Gwen's voice in this show because I find it kind of annoying. <laughs> Sorry, Greg, it's just true. But I... In retrospect, I think it ties in well with her characterization as being sort of mousy and indecisive. Which is perfect so, for Lacey Chabert. Yeah, so so I think I've come to accept it, even though I still don't like that that characterization, but it's better than nothing. I'm kind of kind of curious. Uh now now that we've seen the you know, the, the, the death kind of botched in Amazing Spider Man two, and you know, we've seen Gwen now go in different directions in like the Ultimate Spider-Man comics, and I, I, I admit I actually haven't read Spider Gwen, but there's that uh, that version out there now. I, I have to question if like the inevitable direction of death is really what we're going to see in different media incarnations of her going forward. Like maybe may, maybe with these different sort of possibilities, maybe <laughs> maybe it. people Don't will actually move it. past that. Don't say what I think you're going to say. What am I going to say? I don't know. That we'll see another radioactive spider and get Gwen Spider. Oh. I, I, I actually wasn't going to say that. Uh, <sighs> I was just. I, well, I was more. My thought, here's, here's what I think with Spider Gwen. She's she was spun off of Emma Stone's popularity. That's not going to last long. I think it says this is something I have to, I have to say, which took me by surprise. Too. I remember when Spider Gwen first showed up. Everyone was excited. People. I'll say she has a good costume design. I do, I do like that. People, people liked her in Spider-Verse. I didn't really read Spider-Verse. Then her comic came out and everyone hated it. Meanwhile, Silk, the, the used in Spider-Man, everyone hates her. Robbie Thompson's handed her a comic to do about Silk. It turns out to actually be a good comic. I was shocked too, but I like Robbie it Thompson. Wasn't, it wasn't. This is the thing. That's the thing about Dan Slott, though. Is his ideas aren't bad. It's his execution that's bad. <laughs> that and the fact that he doesn't know how to write women. <laughs> that, that might be a problem. <laughs> that might be a slight problem in a, in yeah. a, in a social in a social justice era. Um, uh, I, I think I think the fact that Gwen Spider Gwen's popularity has died a almost quick death is sort of uh, indicative of the the tail off of what Greg was saying, which is that as the farther we get now from the amazing movies that will never be followed up on, the popularity of that version of Gwen will die quickly and she'll okay. vanish from I, comics. I, I, I never... And and if Homecoming's a hit, then there you go. I, I never thought of it as, yeah. a, as a product of, of the Emma Stone version of the Amazing Spider-Man movies. I, I wasn't alluding to the fact that we'd see Spider-Gwen appearing or they, they, that they'd try and shove that into, uh, right, right. You're, into the movie version. But just that general... Like, questioning whether the death of the Saints happen again in yeah, other media, like, right? What, whether she'll continue to be tied to that sort of... Sort of I think it will be, because despite everything, the classics usually always come back around. I mean, the Ultimate Universe just died recently. Yeah, well, yeah. it was... Yeah. It was crap. It was, I, had I think, a long I think, way to go. I, I think Jesse is on to something, though, in that uh, it's a legitimate question whether or not Gwen will be tied to, the, to her, quote-unquote, her death much more closely going for Like, the problem, I think, is that 
it's hard to get something going long enough to get to that. You can't do a movie and have Gwen Stacy die at the end of it. You have to have that happen at the end of two or three movies. And the question yeah. is whether or not someone's going to commit long enough to actually do that. That won't happen in the in the MCU. At least not with Gwen. Maybe with Mary Jane if if she is indeed in these in the in Homecoming. Uh, Maybe by Homecoming three or something, uh, she'll be taken. No, it'll be uh, uh, Spider Man three prom. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Oh, oh, these actors are going to age so quickly. (laughs) What would would the second movie be? Midterms. I don't know, but uh, I, I think what will happen is the only chance we'll see of Death of Gwen Stacy getting adapted again, because Spider- Amazing Spider-Man 2 fucked it up, fl- flat out, they did. I know you haven't seen it, Jesse, but take our word for it. That, that movie botched that real bad. <laughs> so There was like two things it got right, and the rest of it was just like, wow, what a convoluted mess. The fact that it happened while Spider-Man was fighting Evil Ed from from Fright Night doesn't help. <laughs> oh, electric version of Mr. Freeze. <laughs> electric version of Edward Nigma. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he had the exact same f- f- character arc as Edward Nigma from Batman Forever. You're not even joking. Straight, straight looking like even visually. Yeah, you even have okay. You have Edward Nigma meets Schwarzenegger Freeze. Um, <laughs> And that's how you get Electro. Yeah. Don't you? Know by the way, by the way, it was completely tacked on in the narrative of the movie. By the way, <laughs> I don't know how they managed that, but they they they, they botched Electro. They botched that whole series. Can we just say that both movies are just terrible? But anyway, uh, sorry, you're in, you interrupted my train of thought. What I was saying was that I think the only chance we're going to get of seeing the death of Gwen Stacy adapted now is in animation. And even then, I don't know that they'd go there because of the way well, that they've skewed so much younger now. Well, that, that, that's I assuming know. that, you know, they start putting out more mature-oriented uh, direct-to-video movies. Like I would do. love to see that. Uh, and I'm also assuming that, they, that the rights to do that with Spider-Man are ever recovered from the, uh, from the, uh, the war going on between Sony and Marvel and all yeah. those different... Uh, you know, if, you know if they if they can direct a DVD movie, Death of Gwen Stacy, get Greg Wiseman, Vic Cook to do it, oh. get the same voice cast, change the character designs, but keep it sly. It is, but it is. Yeah. We're not going to get from I get around it. Yeah, legally you couldn't do it with the, the with, with, with this version, but you could. But, but bring in the same voice actors. Yeah. yeah. If, if DTVs were on the table, I think that the discussion of the future of Marvel animation would be a lot different today. But it may yeah. not also. It, you know, we're we're also we shouldn't assume that it would be a positive thing either. Yeah. If, if if certain people are involved, it won't be a positive thing. I, I guess the ultimate conclusion is unless something changes the way their animation is produced, because they're aiming real young right now, unless that changes, we'll never see another attempt to adapt this, at least not for another decade at minimum. Well, at some point, the pendulum will swing back towards more mature fare. Right, right, but it'll be a while. <laughs> because, unfortunately... By their standards, this stuff is successful. This oh, this absolute garbage crap that they're producing. I mean, they just announced they're doing another season of Ultimate Spider-Man. Yeah, that which been, is why... It's been canceled like four times already. Well, I why? why? When Spectacular, when Spectacular Spider-Man aired on network, when they finally aired season two a few years ago, and it trounced Ultimate Spider-Man in the ratings, yeah, network versus cable, but I still felt really satisfied. Yeah. 
that well, that, um, that vortex airing of Spectacular Spider-Man was a huge boon to uh, to basically its popularity. I think uh, it, it really renewed interest in a lot of ways. Although it did have that com- that that promo for that commercial saying the Spectacular Spider-Man is coming with music that singing the itsy bits. That was an awful movie, so bad. And I'm gonna play it right here, by the way. <laughs> Well, it probably helps that they actually aired the finale with sound. <laughs> uh, I can't wait! I can't wait to hear that episode. And you're interviewing Greg. Oh, oh! Yeah, I bet he's gonna have a few things to say about that. But um, yeah, that aired back when Disney XD was not common. Because I, as I recall correctly, not a lot of people had it back when the second season aired, so it was wasn't well, really seen. So, well, but that's more of a discussion for the next one when the transition into season two. Right, right, yeah. right. Well, Ooh, a tease! <laughs> a tease for season two. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're finally here. okay. Can we just say this? We didn't think we would get here, and we <laughs> finally made it. We're through season one. We're beginning season two now. Next, starting next next month. Um, <laughs> oh, don't don't commit to a time frame, Zach. You know better than that. Ish. Well, next <laughs> month ish. It's gonna happen. The um, next episode. Yeah, the next group of episodes. We're gonna be getting into season two. Uh, I'm really, really excited, and I'm optimistic for the future of this show. And yeah, I, I just, I, I kind of get wanted to be a little reflective because this is a, this is a a watermark. This is kind of like. Let's reflect a little bit after we pass out our grades for the episode. Okay, okay. that sounds good. Yeah. All right, uh, Gerard, you go first. Mm, I like this episode, but it's not one of my favorites from the season, so I'd say about a B minus somewhere around there. It's a good episode. Yeah. Uh, Jesse, I give one an A minus. Cool. I give a straight A. And I'm going to give it an A minus myself. Myself again. Before I watched it again, I was probably going to give it a B minus, but I ended up enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. There's so few things in there that bug me a little bit, but uh, I really like it. And um, again, now back to reflection. I mean, it's just uh, it's been it's been quite a ride. Again, like Zach said, I didn't think we would get here. I mean, there was a point where I was working a job that that uh, kept, took me Ate away your from soul. Ate my soul too, in fact, in fact, and. Um, and we had m- months of gaps and everything, but here we are. We're, we're halfway through the podcast. We're half. We're halfway through the show. I mean, I wish we weren't halfway through the show, but but I'm excited that we're halfway through the podcast. And it's just it's been a great time. Not just uh, reviewing the series, but doing other podcasts like Clone Saga Chronicles. That's a plug, by the way. Hey. Where um, it's just hanging out, talking about Spider Man with my friends. I know. I I got I got to get you on Medium Monday soon. I mean that. I'd love to. I would love. I am to. I went, very happy that I, I was able. To on, sorry. Yeah, I wanted to come on for Revenge of the Face Eating Flower, but you skipped me. <laughs> oh, you should. You should have gotten my ear about that. I'm sorry, Jesse. Yeah, we, we interrupted you. I was just going to say I'm very happy to piggyback off of your accomplishment over the past. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, hey man, hey, man hey, don't undersell what you've accomplished with the Facebook group. Not hey, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's worked out pretty well. And and we have to say the Facebook group has been one of our uh, favorite places of feedback and, and of people that have enjoyed this show. We appreciate you letting us plug the show. I know uh, Greg was like, I'm a moderator, so I can do this anyway. 
But anyway, um, yeah, we really do appreciate the uh, the feedback that your your list your your uh, Facebook viewers and posters have given us, and we hope to get more as we go forward. And we just appreciate all your efforts, sir. Uh, no problem. I hope people keep engaging. I love I love seeing what uh, what what the what the fan base has to say about uh, d- you know different developments that come along and and their and their thoughts and everything. It's always great. And I, I appreciate your uh, you enjoy that. I appreciate you you've enjoyed the show. We've got your seal of approval. So yeah, uh, it's, it's it's been good stuff. Yeah, good stuff, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And Greg, so, thank you for coming. So, so we're gonna do a little uh, year in review thing on season one. Uh, yeah, I think we should. Um, what was your? What's everyone's favorite episode of the season? Oh crap! You're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> uh, easily, easily the Sinister Six. I like the Sinister Six one a lot. I think my favorite though is uh, Catalyst. It's the first Green Goblin, the first real Mary Jane. We've got one of the great actions. We've got a great action sequence, and uh, we've also got some really great J. Jonah Jameson, and I feel like that episode also really encompasses everything. Yeah. I mean, I like the pilot a lot, too, because of how, how much it packs in. But um, it, just reflecting on this show, I mean, we've had some great interviews. Um, Greg Weissman's always great. I mean, that, yep. that's just a given. Um, and I've, we've been very appreciative of his time. Uh, Vanessa Marshall and Josh Keaton were phenomenal. Vic Cook... Uh, was phenomenal. Uh, I'm just saying the ones that I've been a part of because there's been a couple I was MIA on. And you got Jennifer L. Anderson to fire me on the podcast I for you. I did, <laughs> which was uh, wholly satisfying. Anytime I need to... Uh... She enjoyed that. <laughs> she really and, enjoyed And we need that. to have her back on. I know it's been a long time since she's been back on, but she was also... Uh, she, she works a job that has her working evenings. We've tried to get her on for, for the last couple, but she just hasn't been available. I mean, she she and I had dinner not too long ago, a couple weeks ago, actually, just before my birthday, and we talked about this. She wants to come back on. It just depends entirely on scheduling, and unfortunately she's very busy these days. Well, you know, give her an air hug for me, and, uh, you know, we she is invited on any time. So, I don't even wouldn't mind having her on the fan panels, just because. Just yeah, it'd be a little conflict of interest, don't you think? Yeah, <laughs> might, be a little, might be a little tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she worked on the show. We've... Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, as far okay, I guess I haven't said my favorite episode. Uh, flipping back through my notes here because I have a pad full of notes. I think uh, yeah, I have to agree with Zach. I think group therapy is the best episode of the first season. It's a great episode. I think it just it uh, just the the animation and the writing. Had a had a kinetic energy to it that, and I think the fight scene is what put it over the top for me. I like Catalyst a lot, um, but group therapy that fight scene was easily the best fight scene of the season. Easily, yeah, I agree. And I think also when it comes to Short Night, there's a little bit of uh, us being happy to see very good depictions of our favorite Spider-Man villains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I love me some Doc Ock. And I love me some Gobby. I also love me some Aki. You know that, too. You know what, though? I gotta admit, uh, as far as being a Doc Ock fan, outside of the comics where he's been butchered to beyond, rec- beyond <laughs> the ability to be recovered... More beverages, please? Uh, I think uh, I think this is actually... Uh, he's been done pretty well in most adaptations. I like him in the 90s show. I like him, I like him in the movies. I like him here. I don't really have a lot to complain about as a Doc Ock fan. 
As long as, as, long as I'm not reading the comics. As long as you haven't seen the ultimate cartoon either. Oh, oh yeah. well, well uh, th- yeah, that's intentional. We're <laughs> talk about that. Yeah, Jesse, do you have a favorite episode? Well, uh, Intervention, um, for sure. But apart yeah. from that, I really like The Invisible Hand. Uh, that was the I thought that was the first episode of the show that really catapulted past my expectations and, and brought it to um, brought the storyline and, and characters to a place I wasn't really expecting. And of course, had the great introduction of, of Tombstone, which was um, one of the first episode, one of the first sequences in the show that like really, really grabbed me. That was the moment where the series changed, and that was probably by design, because he had fought supervillains here and there, and that's when the stakes were immediately upped. I mean, and right after that, we got Green Goblin, we got Doc Ock. Things changed with that episode. Mm-hmm. That was where the, the wheel turned. Um, does anyone have a, aside from Peter, a favorite supporting cast member of the season? Mary Jane. <laughs> Agreed. I love Mary Jane. And um, by the way, I'm going to tell you, said my favorite moment of the podcast wasn't even in the podcast. I was having dinner with Mary Jane with with Mr. Gerard here. Yes, Vanessa Marshall is a lovely lady. I, I I missed her not showing up last year. I hope she comes again. <laughs> well, I don't. Cause now I'm not going to be there. What do you want, Wang for Zach? That hurts you because then I won't. Get it. Yeah, I, I think what my friend wants me to talk about that on Facebook right after was a. Donovan doing one of his great 90s show references. I'm afraid Vanessa's having dinner with me tonight. Which, uh, with some, everyone here I think knows that one. Mm-hmm. For, for my favorite supporting character, I, I have to give that to Flash. Um, even even well, though we, listen, we didn't really see his, uh, you know, his, his breakout moment until near the end of the, uh, the season. I think even, you know, in, in his sort of dopey bully mode that we see most of the time, I... He, he, He's just so great. He's just so great in this show. I, I if I were to, if I were to pick one voice actor to just gush over, it would probably be Josh Labar as uh, as Flash Thompson. I love that laugh he does. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> Doesn't saving his uh, breakout moment for the end actually enhance it, though, Jesse? It does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we've been talking about him over the course of the season, um, and I guess it, yeah, it, by saving it to the end, it does, uh, it does make everything work in a in a in a wider perspective. Yeah. I also think the first hint that there was more to Flash was the fact that Mary Jane pretty much liked him right right away because she's really good at reading people. She knows people. I mean, Greg said that last when we uh, did our uh, our interview over intervention that Peter's smart with science, Mary Jane's smart with people. So she saw something in Flash. Yeah, yeah. That's... Also, I can't I can't hate anybody that has the balls to attempt the old yawn, put the arm around the girl trick. <laughs> Yeah, well, haven't we all? Flash, haven't we all tried that at least once? Yeah. You have to admit it. <laughs> I tried it last well, week. Fla- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done, Zach. <laughs> Will Flash become my favorite supporting character next season? We will see. Will. He's a very strong contender. <laughs> I, I, contender. I, you know, my favorite supporting character because he's a magnificent bastard. Norman yeah. Osborn. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that time. That guy. So, yeah, I guess he counts as a supporting character right now. Yeah, I've been working on my Green Goblin voice, by the way. Nice. Yeah, he's he never apologizes, and we'll talk about that I again much later. Apologize. But um, I guess it comes down to favorite villain. Hmm. I wanted to immediately say Doctor Octopus when we're thinking about it. Nah, Doctor Octopus. Green Goblin. Hmm. Mm. That is hard. I, I, it has to be Doc Ock for me. 
Yeah, it's tough. Um, I'll just take the easy out and say Green Goblin. Boo! Boo, Wendy! <laughs> so it's a tie. Therefore, it is. both teams will go we'll on more. either side. <laughs> oh, God, are we going to do a, a uh, the old XFL kickoff where we just put the ball in the middle and just run towards <laughs> it, whoever gets there first wins? Well, Zach plays more. Sorry, played more sports than any of us. He's a football fan, so yeah. But Greg, you've also met me. I'm a beef tank. <laughs> if I run into Zach, I'll break every bone in the skeleton. <laughs> Do we have? What are you favorites? trying to say, Delator? I'm trying to say that you're a twink, Zach. <laughs> hey, he who gets he who gets lowest gets he who he who gets lowest gets wins, boy. Are you implying that you would? Get down immediately, Zach, because I think you're kind of. <laughs> I think you're implying something that I wasn't even going for. Talking about in football. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I know, Zach. I'm talking about double entendres. Ah, you! <laughs> <laughs> now I'm keeping it in. <laughs> okay, do we have. Do any of us have a favorite single moment of the season? I know what mine is. Yes. Because we finally got it right. I'm sorry, repeat that? Face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot. My favorite moment of the season. Mm, that's a tough one to argue with. Mm. But I don't know that one jumps out at me, to be honest. I'm, I'm going to recycle my previous answer and say the introduction of Tombstone. That was good also. Hmm. I'm gonna. This is kind of a weird one, but you know what I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with uh, when they created the Rhino in the lab. That whole sort of Doctor Frankenstein's laboratory thing that they had going with the music and the the lighting and all that stuff. Are you thinking of Sandman? Yeah, I, Sandman or, would fit yeah, that better. You know what? I'm probably thinking of Sandman. Either one. Uh, but probably you're right. I think you're yeah yeah. You know what? Now that I'm imagining it visually, you're right. It's Sandman. Where it, it's it's just so different from anything we had seen in any Spider-Man adaptation up to that point. To me, that was the first moment that I really grew to love this show more than or okay, not more than the '90s shows. That has a special place for a different reason. But to me, that's when I when that that moment cemented in my mind that I was seeing something that was not simply, you know, the fifth or sixth adaptation of Spider-Man, and where it was something wholly unique to its own. An oddball choice, I know, but still, I'm an no, odd I, I, fella. The, no, I know, I like that. I like everything. That's cool. I wouldn't have thought of that. But it's, it's makes sense to me. I like that. It was a great moment, especially the reactions. We sweep up and we try again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Norman, you humanitarian. <laughs> and um, do we have anything else to say? Anything else we should talk about for this season? Uh, no, I think we uh, I think we nailed it. I think we nailed it down. I think we nailed it too. I am extinguished. All right. <laughs> so am I. So um, well. That's it. That's season one. Join us next time. I want to dive into season two. And uh, again, I'm very happy that we're finally here. Mm-hmm. I've deliberately been holding back on watching most of season two so that I could have be a little more of a fresh perspective on it. So, yes, you'll, you'll be getting a different draw uh, in the next bunch of episodes. Absolutely. Whether that's a good or a bad thing, we're going to see. 
believe the, the term is finally. <laughs> finally, no, not quite. I can't spin that one, uh, uh, Rock. But I'll try. <laughs> Maybe I'll try. Uh, All right. We'll see you next time with season two and Mysterio. started the turkey this morning, you know, before the post-traumatic stress kicked in. As a teenager of the 90s, I remember a, a sense of frustration with Fox Kids' Spider-Man the Animated Series due to the fact that it may have been ironic or iconic. iconic. Excuse me. Yeah. Don't. Uh, <laughs> fuck you. Um, as a teenager in the 90s, I remember a sense of frustration with Fox Kids' Spider-Man the Animated Series due to the fact that it may have been iconic it was also very much a product of, of its time with no limitations in terms of plotting and budget. It further frustrated and, me... Um, no end of limitations. That's the complete opposite of the way you read that. Ah, take three. <laughs>